0: Welcome to The Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. You you must know this one. I I heard this last night. Why was
1: six afraid of seven? I don't know. Because seven, eight, nine.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, And from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download a culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke
0: from Lars Ulrich of Metallica that'll help break the ice. Just what you'd expect from a guy who released an album called Kill Em All. (laughs) A math joke. Uh, We'll speak with Lars later. Plus, we talked to Daniel Radcliffe, formerly of the Harry Potter films, now star of the miniseries A Young Doctor's Notebook, and the new Broadway revival of the play The Cripple of Mon. Also coming up, Eat, Pray, Love author Elizabeth Gilbert reads from her latest. And if
2: this all sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired last October. So cast your mind back to a time when Jay Leno still hosted a late night show, when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines.
3: We're on the verge of a government shutdown, folks. And there's little hope of a deal now. Impending shutdown. In 57 Earth minutes. Federal government shutdown. Government shutdown. Shutdown for the first time in 17
2: years. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Pat Morrison. She's a columnist for the LA Times, correspondent for KPCC in Los Angeles. Also one of the few people I know that has a hot dog named after her at Pink's Hot Dogs in Los Angeles. That's right. Pat, what story are you going to be talking about at your parties this weekend?
4: I think that Google Glass is over. And I say this because mm. the students at the Royal College of Art in London have created these two masks to allow you to have superhuman hearing and sight. Now, just think of if Tony what? Stark went into Mexican wrestling. This is what it would look like.
2: <laughs> so it's a, so it's leather. Does it fit over? your It's face like, like a
4: that? very cool origami plastic, and you just imagine somebody saying, "Luke, I am no father."
0: <laughs> well, what does it do besides look it, weird?
4: One of them goes over the mouth, the ears, and the nose, and lets you isolate sound in a noisy environment. It's like Superman mm. zeroing in on what somebody is saying and the oh, wow. other one is worn over the eyes, which allows you to do essentially the same thing, see movement that would ordinarily be undetectable.
2: Is this using like special technology or is it just kind of focusing light and or sound in a certain way
0: towards your ears and eyes?
4: It's both. It's custom software and it siphons out anything you're not after looking at.
0: And you're not going to be looking at much because if you're wearing this mask, I assume people are not going to be interacting with you <laughs> because you look like Optimus Prime or something <laughs> <laughs> crazy.
2: Personally,
4: I look at it as the idea Party mask because you can't eat. Oh, there you go. It
2: keeps you slim as well. It's superhuman. <laughs> the uh, I mean, the thing about all of these kind of gizmos is they all sound like something that I would have seen advertised in the back of a comic book when I was growing up, but they would be fake. And you know, have like... been
4: disappointed after you saved your allowance to send off for it. Right. Remember Sea Monkeys?
0: Exactly. <laughs> the hovercraft that never came? X ray specs. But these are real. It's a great world we live in. I wonder what's in the back of comic books now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Like normal things. Wood. Dirt. (laughs)
0: Pat Morrison, thanks so much for the small talk. Always a pleasure, guys. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our famed history lesson with a booze chaser. First, the history part. You know, last week was the finale of what some say is the greatest TV show ever, Breaking Bad.
2: Yes, so here's Michelle Philippi to tell you about a show at the opposite end of the quality spectrum.
5: In the mid-60s, it wasn't just rock music that turned weird. Take, for instance, TV sitcoms, which for a few years there were kind of a trip. Shows like My Favorite Martian and Bewitched featured all-American Joes dealing with uncles from outer space, or with cute young wives who were secretly centuries-old sorcerers. But far out as they were, supernatural sitcoms scored blockbuster ratings, which might explain why, in 1965, NBC thought it'd be a great idea to air a comedy about a family man who buys a car that's possessed by his dead mother.
6: Everybody knows in the second life we all come back sooner or later As anything from a pussy
7: cat to a man-eating alligator
5: It was called, appropriately, My Mother the Car Created by a couple of guys named Alan Burns and Chris Hayward And while the theme song was actually pretty groovy yes.
6: Decided she'd come
5: back as a car Just about everything else about it was supernaturally awful The thin plot lines yielded emaciated jokes so bad, even the laugh track didn't seem all that amused.
8: Listen, just because I won't bring the car home is no no reason for my kids not to talk
3: to me.
5: Why can't the kids play with your car? You play with their doll. (laughs) See? The show barely lasted a season. But talk show legend Johnny Carson kept the memory alive by making it the butt of jokes for the next decade. Meanwhile, critics crowned My Mother the Car the worst TV show ever made a title it held until 2002, when TV Guide ranked it merely second worst behind The Jerry Springer Show. But from fertilizer can grow beautiful flowers. Chris Hayward went on to write and produce for the hit show Barney Miller. Alan Burns later created The Mary Tyler Moore Show, along with one of My Mother the Cars writers, James L. Brooks, who now produces the longest running sitcom in TV history, The Simpsons.
0: So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the drink to go along with it. I'm on the line with Travis Formont. He is the head bartender at Roast in Detroit, a city which is the mother of the American automobile. Travis, did this bad idea inspire a good idea? What kind of cocktail did you decide to make after hearing about this?
9: Well, for me, the first thing that jumped out was the name of the car, the Porter, the 1928 Porter, which Uh obviously makes me think of Porter Beer which immediately drew me to a classic cocktail, which is a Flip. So the cocktail I came up with was a Porter Flip. What's a Flip? The main ingredient people notice about a Flip is it uses a whole egg. And traditionally, it's made with beer, egg, sugar, and then usually a base of rum, whiskey, or something like that.
0: So when I think of eggs and drinks, I always think of that scene in Rocky, where he drinks eggs. (laughs) But this drink sounds like a washed-up Rocky at the end of his career. Exactly. Put a little (laughs) alcohol in there. Exactly. Help him
9: drown his sorrows.
0: So tell me, how do you build this drink?
9: For this particular one, we use a base of bourbon. We use Corner Creek. Okay. Add a little demerara sugar, the whole egg. Then we add about an ounce and a half of porter. You do a dry shake on it first, which is just take a Boston shaker, and we throw a coil in it that actually whips it up as you shake it. Oh, wow. So then we just basically shake it for at least probably two minutes. And then we add the ice, we chill it down, then we just double strain it right into a cocktail glass.
0: So this TV show, what do you think? Do you think uh, this could work in the modern age? Uh, Maybe a reboot, How I Met Your Mother the Car, or something like that?
9: I don't know. It'd be a stretch. I mean, it'd it'd have to have a lot of, of, of reworking.
0: But see, I thought this show idea was crazy when I first heard of it, but then I thought about Knight Rider.
9: Which exactly. Is.
0: Actually, that's the first thing I thought of, too. <laughs> honestly. But I mean, that's a little bit cooler, right? That is cooler. But this car could have been Kit's grandmother. Yeah, true story. <laughs> but little did she know that her grandchild would have David Hasselhoff sit on him <laughs> <laughs> for years.
9: <laughs>
0: Enrico, after that chat, I was curious what Hasselhoff was up to these days. Oh, you too? Who who isn't? Yeah. So I did a little research, and it turns out in December, the Hoff appears in Peter Pan, a, quote, swashbuckling pantomime adventure uh, in England somewhere. Wow. So I assume he plays Hook. Um, Yeah. Not Peter. He captains a talking pirate ship. Wow. Kids are going to love it. I would see that,
2: actually. (laughs) Me too. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find all our drink recipes on our website, (laughs) dinnerpartydownload.org.
0: And now, The Guest List, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And our guest is cartoonist Jeff Smith. Over 13
2: years, his comic book series Bone earned 11 Harvey Awards. They are the Oscars of comics. His latest series, Rassle, about a time-traveling art thief was just collected into one book. Here's Jeff to tell us about another project and to share his list.
8: My name is Jeff Smith, creator of Bone. I was also the editor of the most recent volume of Best American Comics, 2013, in which I spent an entire year reading every comic book in the world. And the nine-year-old in me was ecstatic. I am not exaggerating. I went to the grocery store one day, bought some milk and some cookies, came back to my studio and sat and read comics all day. And then the next day, I drank bourbon. (laughs) So after all that weeding out of this pile of fantastic cartoonists, for you, I've come up with the cream of the independent underground crop. And here they are. My first pick is Kate Beaton. It's a young woman from Canada who does a webcomic called Hark a Vagrant. It's a very funny, very humorously drawn strip but the idea behind the strip is that she takes characters from history, people like George Washington or Nikola Tesla, and throws them into very contemporary situations. Well, the piece I picked for the collection was a perfect example. Wonder Woman is standing in the street, and there's a, obviously a bad guy fleeing with bags of money, and there's, there's a woman who why, why aren't you running him down while you chasing him? And Wonder Woman just looks at her and says, I'm wearing a strapless bathing suit and high-heeled boots. What would you do? Then she says, hey, do you wanna see me use my lasso of truth? And she she puts it around herself and she turns to the person and says, shut up. (laughs) She put the lasso of truth on herself and told the lady to shut up. Oh my. What it is I like about Kate's work is really the timing. There's a real art to the syntax between any two panels in a comic. You have to have the story move, you have to have the character move, and all those things create cues to the reader's eye and brain. And someone who's a master of the art form can just use the slightest change in a drawing to create humor. That's really, really funny. You have to actually just see it. My second pick is a very talented young guy named Sam Alden, and he does a webcomic called Haunter. It's a comic that has no words. It's fantasy-based. It follows a young Robin Hoodish woman, just has like a longbow, hunting through the woods, and she comes across an ancient temple across a broad river. She swims the river, goes into the temple, and ends up unleashing like some ancient gods. None of this is explained. You begin to feel like you're perhaps on another planet, or in another dimension, and you don't know. The story is very dreamlike. It does feel a little bit to me like a, kind of an Alice in Wonderland tumbling down and, and going further and further. But I think that's kind of the fun of it. It's very difficult to do a wordless comic and I have done long segments of wordless comics. But when I see someone really go for it, I know they're reaching to get it cuz it it is hard cuz the words they they can be a crutch. You can just explain things, you know. You can sometimes people even explain what you're looking at. But once you remove the words, it's really just between you and the reader and the two of your imaginations kind of meeting. Sam Alden, he's like 26 years old and um, make more comics, Sam, please. Well, my next choice is Tom Gauld, a British cartoonist. He's done a couple of books I One of them was called Goliath, and it's the story of David and Goliath told from the viewpoint of Goliath, which is a very interesting idea, and especially the twist he puts on it, is that Goliath isn't this big, ferocious monster. But instead he just happens to be the biggest guy. He's a freak who's really large, but he's really quiet. But because he's so big, he's always the one that the guys go, come on, you go out, you go out and do it. But that's only half the story. He is really, really talented and his visuals are as funny and interesting as his stories comics is a medium where story and the words and the pictures all have to interact. Since we're doing a dinner party, they interact like a gravy <laughs> all over your stuffing and chicken and mashed potatoes.
0: The guest list from Jeff Smith, curator of the Best American Comics 2013. Enrico, I think I can guess the answer, but yeah. how much time have you spent reading comic books in your life? <laughs>
2: um In Earth hours or uh, galactic orbit cycles.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so a lot. Too much, (laughs) frankly. Folks, coming up, novelist Elizabeth Gilbert keeps the planet spinning, and actor Daniel Radcliffe reveals why he loves Elvis. When The Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, an hour of food, culture, and humor. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. This is an encore broadcast
2: of a show that first aired last October Coming up, Eat, Pray, Love author Elizabeth Gilbert tells an otherworldly tale. But first, here's our guest of honor.
0: Yes, it's actor Daniel Radcliffe. You know him as the title character of the Harry Potter movies. Sure do. But he's gathering acclaim for other work on stage and screen. He stars in the Broadway premiere of The Cripple of Inishman, which opens this week. And he made his TV debut last year in A Young Doctor's Notebook, a dark comic series based on the stories by the early 20th century author Mikhail Bulgakov. Radcliffe plays a med school graduate in 1917 Russia who's sent to a small village hospital where he learns good grades don't equal good medicine. When I met with Radcliffe, I asked if he was a Bulgakov fan.
6: Yeah, I am a huge fan of this writer. Um, On my 21st birthday, I went to Russia, to Moscow, to visit his house, um, because it's the house that appears in his book, The Master and Margarita. Yeah, Mikhail Bulgakov is, is a a brilliant writer, very, very funny, I think way ahead of his time in terms of just how conversational some of his writing is. And um, so when the opportunity came along to do this series and they said they were adapting his first book, I just couldn't believe it. And the fact that it landed on my lap, I was just like, this is perfect. And they had no idea. What turned you on to bogakov <sighs> You know, it's a terrible thing to admit, but it was quite simply one of those, If you like, if you bought this, you might also like on Amazon. As if you haven't already done enough for Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know that's the thing. I they, they they've done something for me now. They can we're even now. Amazon. Yeah. You have certainly. Yeah. You guys have a mutually beneficial relationship. So it
0: sounds like you're excited because you love the writer. Did you have any apprehension about playing what's frankly
6: a bit of a dysfunctional character? Oh no, not at all. Um, I was, it was great. I've I've done it. I've done enough functioning. Um, I. Um... Well, or was it the opposite? Was that something that appealed to you? That it was a bit of a deviation from what you're known for? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I. I... You know, he's a character who's very out of his depth and very well-meaning and, and very earnest, but who, you know, getting wrapped up in morphine addiction and, and a whole load of other bad stuff when he's out and isolated in, um, in the middle of nowhere, he, he, you know, he changes. It changes his character into somebody who is kind of, you know, by the time we get to the second series, which I've only just finished filming, he's somebody who's kind of completely beyond redemption, really.
3: Please, Sunder. to-
6: <laughs> Diphtheritic croup. Her throat's blocked. How long has she been like this? Five days. Five days. Well, you realise you've almost certainly killed her. <gasps> well, what have you been doing for five days? There's nothing to do around here for one day. Five days. Stupid witch. Now it's my problem. Bring her in.
0: So your co-star in the show is John Hamm, who plays kind of an older, wiser.
6: Albeit morphine addicted ver- version of you, we play the same. We play the same character at twenty different, uh, twenty years apart in their lives. The whole series, if you like, is a flashback of John's character, and he's sort of walking through his own flashback, if you like, interacting with me, his younger self, and generally giving me a very hard time.
0: What What was it like working with? I mean you're doing you have a couple of films coming out this year as well as this television show. But well, what was it like working with different people? You did, you know, many many the Potter films, you work with the same cast, a lot of the same crew although the directors shifted. What are the pros
6: and cons of working with a new group? Part of the thrill of moving on from Potter for me has been a- being able to work with all these other actors and directors and crews and and coming to the states and doing work over here for the first time was a big thing for me because I'd never done that before. Because uh, in England, basically, if you if you worked on a Harry Potter film, you will never walk onto a set again without knowing somebody. Because <laughs> um, it pretty much it's a, it's a small island. There, there were a thousand people on that crew, and there's only you know sixty million people on the island, so it's, you bump into them a lot. Well, that idea
0: of being known and not being known. I, I was as I was preparing for this interview, uh, I saw an interview you gave, and you were talking about being in New York on a certain Halloween. Yeah. You wore a mask. Yeah. And And you were talking about how it was for you it was almost a surreal experience to wander around with your head up
6: can you can you talk about that yeah, absolutely you no know, i went I went out on Halloween a couple of years ago with a, just like an elvis mask on and just wandered around and it is this strange thing where because normally I keep my head down and try not to make eye contact because that's when I have slightly um Distinctive eyes, and and uh, people tend to latch onto that when I meet them. Few people have seen your movies, uh, right? And 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 it, it is a very unusual and surreal feeling to be able to walk around with head up, kind of not worried about meeting anyone's eye. Um, you know, I'm not complaining because I've have, I have a lovely life, and it's it's just one of the strange, weird of my life but it's uh but it's definitely one that on Halloween was was it's a great day of the year for me
0: I was thinking that another way you could do that without the mask is you could just play Harry Potter no one would believe you
6: I see I don't think they would I think they just think oh Daniel Radcliffe's gone crazy um, I think it's more what he's just wandering around in a cape and, and glasses and thinks it's all gone to his head. Like You don't think you would just blend in with all the other Harry Potters? I don't think I would. I think they'd be like, that's 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 actually Daniel Radcliffe there. I think I might end up taking more attention that way. All right. Well, scratch the plan. Stick with the Elvis mask. Yeah, I think I would. Oh, I might find a new mask this year. I'll have to go to a costume shop and see what they've got. All right, that's, so we prevented other people with Elvis' Mass from
0: being accosted then. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> so hey, uh, we have two standard questions on our show that we ask each of our guests. And, and the first question is, uh, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews?
6: Well, aside from promoting uh, Young Doctor's Notebook at the moment, I'm also promoting a movie called Kill Your Darlings. Which is about Allen Ginsberg's life at Columbia University. And, and, and a true story of a murder that took place. But um, there is a, a gay sex scene in the movie, and I am getting asked a lot about that. And my least favorite question at the moment is anything along the lines of, "Was it hard to do a gay sex scene? Was it weird doing a gay sex scene?" We, you know, you know, because ultimately everyone just wants to, everyone just wants me to, to say, "Yeah, it was super weird. I hated it." Like, whereas ultimately, like, it was just a job. It's a scene, like, you know, it's a scene with a little bit more awkwardness than any other, but ultimately, it's just another scene.
0: All right. Well, our last question uh, that we ask each of our guests is: tell us something we don't know,
6: something you haven't talked about in interviews before, or just an interesting fact about the world. Oh, interesting facts. Well, I mean, uh, okay, so you know when you see a pub sign that says uh, Ye Olde Tavern or whatever? Yeah, yeah, with the O-L-D-E spelling, yeah. And the, Well, the Y-E, everyone's pronounces it ye, but it's not. That Y is actually a thing called a thorn. It's an old English letter, which was a combination of a T and an H, and so you do still pronounce it the. That Y in that context means it m- amounts to a T-H. And how do you know that fact? Um, TV. <laughs> That's a great. It the, wasn't an Amazon book that some recommended. That was. That was. I think that was off uh, QI, which is an English show. That if you don't know it, everyone should check it out. There's lo- lots of excerpts on YouTube. So, and if you want a fact about myself that nobody knows, it is I know the in- by heart, know all the lyrics to Real Slim Shady, but I'm not going to do them for you now. Daniel Radcliffe,
0: his new miniseries, A Young Doctor's Notebook, airs on the Ovation Network Wednesday nights. And Brendan,
2: for years, when I had round glasses, I Mm -hmm. I went as Harry Potter for Halloween. I seem to remember that. But uh, I'm thinking this year I can mix it up and be Harry Potter wearing an Elvis mask.
0: (laughs) There you go. It's great. You can get like a Z-shaped sequin scar on your forehead. Go over big. Done. Folks, if you, like me, want to imagine Daniel Radcliffe singing Slim Shady, we have a link to that Eminem video at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org.
1: And now, time to eavesdrop.
2: Elizabeth Gilbert's mega-selling memoir, Eat, Pray, Love, led Time Magazine to name her one of the most influential people on Earth, Today we overhear her read from her new novel. It's a dinner party-worthy passage about actually a dinner party.
3: Hi, I'm Elizabeth Gilbert, and my new book is called The Signature of All Things. It's a story following the fortunes of a fictitious family called the Whitakers. Henry Whitaker made his fortune in the quinine trade, and his daughter Alma is born into this rarefied world in turn of the 19th century Philadelphia. Alma herself ultimately grows up to be a respected scientist, and um, part of her brilliance comes from being raised on the family estate, which is called Whiteacre. What I'm about to read is probably the most significant event of her youth. It was late summer of 1808. Maestro Luco Pontesilli, the brilliant Italian astronomer, had come to Philadelphia to speak at the American Philosophical Society, and Henry lured him up to Whiteacre by hosting a ball in his honor. This was to be the most elaborate affair the Whitakers had ever attempted. Tropical flowers that had never before been taken out of the balmy forcing houses were arranged in tableaus all over the mansion. Alma was scrubbed, her coxcomb of unruly red hair forced into a satin bow nearly as big as her head. It was hot. The guests spilled out of doors in search of relief, lounging on the verandas, leaning against marble statues, trying in vain to draw coolness from stone. In an effort to slake their thirst, people drank a good deal more punch than perhaps they had intended to drink, and a general air of lighthearted giddiness took hold of everyone. The charming Italian astronomer attempted to teach the gentlemen of Philadelphia some wild Neapolitan dance steps, and he made his rounds with every lady, too. Shortly after midnight, it was decided that the famous Italian cosmological maestro would recreate a model of the universe on the great lawn of Whiteacre, using the guests themselves as heavenly bodies. With a marvelous air of both authority and comedy, Ponticelli placed Henry Whittaker, the Sun, at the center of the lawn. Then he gathered up a number of other gentlemen to serve as planets. Tiny Mercury was portrayed by a diminutive but dignified grain merchant from Germantown. For Jupiter, Ponticelli commandeered a retired sea captain whose corpulent appearance in the solar system reduced the entire party to hysterical laughter. On it went until all the planets were arranged across the lawn at the proper distance from the sun and from each other. Then Ponticelli set them in orbit around Henry. Soon the ladies were clamoring to join the amusement and so Ponticelli arranged them around the men to serve as moons. This landscape of heavenly bodies took on the appearance of the most strange and beautiful waltz the good people of Philadelphia had ever seen. Ponticelli climbed atop a high garden wall and swayed precariously there, crying across the night, "'Stay at your velocity, men! Do not abandon your trajectory, ladies!' Alma wanted to be in it. She had never before seen anything so thrilling. She was the only child in attendance, as she had been for all her life the only child in attendance. She ran over to the garden wall and cried up to the dangerously unstable Maestro Pontesili, "'Put me in it, sir!' He might have dismissed her entirely, but then Henry bellowed from the center of the solar system, Give the girl a place! Ponticelli shrugged. You're a comet! What does a comet do, sir? You fly about in all directions, the Italian commanded. And so she did. She propelled herself into the midst of the planets, scuttling and twirling, ribbons unfurling from her hair. Whenever she neared her father, he would cry, "'Not so close to me, Plum, or you will burn to cinders,' and push her away." Astonishingly, at some point, a sputtering torch was thrust into her hands. The torch spit sparks as she bolted across the cosmos, the only body not held to a strict elliptical path. Nobody stopped her. She was a comet. She did not know that she was not flying.
2: Writer Elizabeth Gilbert, reading from her new novel, The Signature of All Things. By the way, that scene was inspired by a real party, as witnessed by the poet Keats. And you are listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. Earth.
0: And now, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of a dinner party— the food.
2: And, Brendan, today we are going to talk about forests of food. All right. Because...
0: Broccoli trees and gravy brooks
2: and that is, no. steak logs. No, these are way less disgusting and they are real. Oh, okay. But food forests are kind of like parks designed to produce food. And almost exactly a year ago, the Beacon Hill community in Seattle started planting the biggest food forest on public land in America, seven acres. I spoke to two of the folks involved this week, Glenn Herlihy and designer Jenny Pell, and I started by asking, what makes a public food forest different from a public garden?
7: Well, food forest is looking at mostly perennial plants. So we're looking at trees and vines and all kinds of perennial plants. So rather than having a patch where you're going to grow cukes and tomatoes and carrots, where you have to replant it every year, a food forest is just going to mature over time into a really abundant fruit and berry and vegetable system, and what we're looking at is mimicking the forest ecosystem, the natural ecosystem. So, it's basically a a delicious, healthy forest. Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) Where did the idea come from to do that with the land instead of, you know, your standard park?
10: Uh, Well, it came out of uh, a design class, permaculture design class, and the, the final design project was to design a farm for a piece of land. And myself and a few others saw this piece of land in my neighborhood and thought, you know, we'd do a dream design for it for the class. But we ended up taking it to the community and actually produce a physical project. Your theoretical homework assignment became the real deal. Now, here's the part of this, though, that I think is
2: is most spectacular to people. As you mentioned, this is a, a community project open to the public. Anyone can come in and take this food. But there's the rub. What if... One person or a few people come in
10: and just help themselves to a large portion of the food. What do you do? Yeah, that doesn't seem to be a problem in our city here. We have a lot of public gardens where it does be a problem is small gardens have one or two trees, and maybe they'll see their harvest uh, get diminished in the in the in the night but Uh, With the Beacon Food Forest, we have this large tract of land to create a real abundance. It it won't be possible to steal everything. And uh, you can't call it stealing because we're giving it away. (laughs) That's true. And frankly, if there's no damage done to the tree and the land, then we consider ourselves successful.
7: Yeah, if they eat it all, then we're stoked. What that really means if they eat it all is that we need more food forests.
2: But what about commercial interests? What about somebody coming in and taking food and profiting from
7: it? No one's asked that question of me before. Mostly people say, what if homeless people eat it? I'm like, great, homeless people need fresh food. But I, I think that in terms of the commercial interest, I've never had anybody say, what if somebody comes and harvests it all and sells it?
2: Well, I'm glad to bring that to your attention. What would happen <laughs> if they did though? I mean, there are plenty of small farm to table, you know, restaurants that would love to have a nearby, extremely local source of, you know, really fresh blueberries or whatever.
10: Yeah, but if they got caught doing it, man, that would be bad press for them. <laughs> that is a public food farm <laughs> taking food. We, with a lot of eyes on the garden as well, you know, there's a lot of community involvement and that uh, puts people there most of the day and into the evening. And we hold a lot of events and we're very visible in our location. So that all deters people coming in and stealing, so to speak.
2: This has been going for about a year now. What is actually available now? What kind of stuff is growing there at the moment?
10: Uh, We have a lot of pumpkins going right now. We plan on doing a lot of carving and eating of those. We've had a lot of kale and broccoli and just some annuals, but our trees are young. And we had a few plums and apples and pears, but uh, it will be a few years before we see a significant amount of harvest. Actually, we had we had one quince going this year. It had we had salvaged this probably five or seven year old tree, and we weren't sure it was going to make it, but it produced uh, a quince. And we were psyched, and it sat there on top of the tree for all summer long into the fall. It was just about there, and I, I think it had just reached a ripeness, and it disappeared. And uh, that was it was actually a, re- a joyous moment that somebody could find a use for it, and it wasn't lying on the ground, so they obviously took it home and you know, made jam with one quince.
2: <laughs> a tiny, tiny jar of quince. That's jam. That's right. Uh, what what else is uh, My understanding is that there's some odd fruits that you're
10: planning on. Uh, there are varieties that we won't find in our grocery stores. Uh, a lot of them are hard to transport, or they're just not grown commercially. Like what? We'll have uh, varieties of plums that you don't see in grocery stores, shiro plums and European plums and so forth, and uh, there's apple varieties
7: that you
10: don't see in a lot of orchards around here.
7: One of my favorites is mulberries. mulberries mm. you don't see at market because they produce over a really long period of time, but only small amounts. So every day you can go get a small bowl for breakfast, but you don't ever get a gigantic harvest.
2: And that is the dream of any urban farming project, I think, that that thing that you just don't get in the city of stepping outside and there's just food sitting there that you can put on your cereal.
7: Well, I mean, I want kids to have that experience of going into the berry patch and stuffing their face. And you, you it, it's really, you know... What low-income family can afford raspberries? This is seven bucks, a little tiny container. Sure. And to be able to go and just eat and eat and eat and eat till you can't eat anymore, that's what we want. We want kids mm-hmm. to know that there's abundance and that it's not expensive. And, you know, raspberries about the easiest thing to propagate in the world. Jenny Pell and Glenn Herlihy
2: of Seattle's Beacon Hill Food Forest and ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a quick break because now we're super hungry for fruit.
0: That's right. That's so it. while we go eat, sit tight, because mm. coming up, Metallica's Lars Ulrich answers your etiquette questions while gorging himself on scrambled eggs. More when eating. When the Dinner Party Download continues.
2: Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano.
0: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll speak with the director of The Summit, a new documentary about one of the darkest days in mountain climbing history. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson.
2: Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Lars Ulrich. Back in 1981, he put an ad in a local newspaper seeking musicians to play some heavy metal with and they went on to form Metallica. They are considered one of the progenitors of thrash metal. Their self-titled 1991 (laughs) album went platinum times 16. It's amazing. And remains the best-selling record of the modern rock chart era. They are still one of the biggest draws on the international concert circuit. And speaking of which, their new <laughs> concert slash narrative film *Through the Never* is on three D IMAX screens now. <laughs> Why are you laughing? It's
0: embarrassment,
2: Lars.
1: That's a big word. That's not one we hear often in rock and roll.
0: <laughs> which one?
1: Per, 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 whatever that was.
2: That was progenitors. Uh, you're in
0: public radio now,
1: man. <laughs> I I know I am. I'm sitting here
2: trying to Google that as we're speaking. It's a good thing. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna do fine. That's right. We had a great time at this movie. It is it's huge and it's loud and it's strange, and it kind of made me feel like a teenage metal fan again. Thank you. Which leads us to ask the first question, what concert movies sort of stoked you as a young rock fan? What got you excited?
1: Obviously, at some point, the the song Remains the Same shows up on your radar. um, Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin. Of course. Growing up in Denmark, uh, there wasn't really a lot of concert films in in my sort of youth youth. Uh, When I came to America when I was 17, I became aware of the phenomena of... The song remains the same. The Rocky Horror Picture Show, you know, some really? of those types of things that were doing the the midnight showings and all the suburban movie theaters at the time. Um, Gimme Shelter, mm. the Rolling Stones, is probably the one that, that I've seen the most. But even Purple Rain, The Clash's wow. Rude Boy. I mean, there's a lot of things over the years that have tried to take the format to some different places that have moved me absolutely
0: the concert portions of this film are shot from your point of view yeah the cameras kind of roam around on stage with you and it like gives a sense of just how intensely physical the type of metal you play is. You're just like dripping with sweat and it actually made me hurt a little bit watching it. Um, <laughs> Try playing it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I was yeah, going to yeah. say, how do you maintain that energy? <laughs> at 50? <50. laughs> yeah, how do you maintain that energy over the course of a tour <laughs> and at your age? Well, the secret is that at some point you
1: wake up and start treating the physicality of it with a little more respect than you do obviously when you're in your 20s or your 30s. Um, yeah. You mm. have no choice. And we just, you know, we mm. have two guys that travel with us that are sort of full-time you know, stretches and massages and, and sort of stitches back together wow. after each show. Really? And, like a sports so it, doctor, kind of? I was just going to say there. unfortunately there's a little bit of sports buried underneath all this. You have to eat right, uh, sleep right. The late nights are probably not as late as they used to be. They're and, and, destroying
2: our fantasy, man.
1: <laughs> Listen. This sounds more public radio
0: than metal. So right? There
1: you go. Uh, all those big words from before, they fit right in now. Um, <laughs> I work out uh, religiously every day and eat a pretty, um, I'd say, boring diet and on backstage there's lots of strange protein drinks and
0: odd colored vegetables yeah. like chia seeds on your rider now and yeah stuff?
1: it's it's really pathetic no <laughs> more animal blood no more yeah
2: all all those stories I'm sorry it's I think this leads well to this question you're kind of known as standard bearers of in that kind of intense metal God, God help us wa- all
0: uh, we want to know <laughs> what is Is that the name of your next album or is <laughs> it is now <laughs>
2: <laughs> we should no. note that you're eating right now. Part of your diet, you're eating some scrambled eggs right now. That's right. Yeah, and please note those are egg whites. Oh my gosh. <laughs> pure protein. Oh yeah, he wasn't kidding, folks. So here's the question: what What is hiding in your iPod that would surprise people? Like we're looking for Yanni level surprise here. What are, what, <laughs> what do you
0: listen to when you go to bed after when you when you go to bed after a concert at nine fifteen um, post cocoa?
1: I really don't listen to music uh, other than in the car. Usually my iPod mercilessly gets unplugged by one of the kids and they put their iPhones in and then um, I'm listening to whatever they want to listen to. Thankfully, since I uh, rear them on fairly steady doses of ACDC to Deep Purple to Guns N' Roses when they were kids, they're now listening to stuff like the Foo Fighters and Queens of the Stone Age and the Arctic
2: Monkeys and so on which is pretty cool it's not One Direction
1: it's not One Direction (laughs) no in the deeper darker corners of my iPod I've got a lot of jazz I grew up uh, in a jazz household uh, even the occasional uh, Sade if you must know (laughs) Um, wow there we go (laughs) there's the mother load (laughs) Uh, there you go and if you really must know then we don't have many disco parties in the car but if we have a disco party in the car then the first thing that comes on is Bronski
2: beat oh wow The, the dance band from the 80s. They're great. So there you go.
0: Well, you obviously know... It sounds like you've learned over the years how to behave being a rock and roller.
2: Perhaps too well. Yeah, perhaps yeah. too well. So we have, we have some questions... eats egg whites.
0: <laughs> Out of a red solo cup. Uh, yeah, it's not even black. It's red. But hey, we have some questions from uh, from our audience. Obviously, you're talking with your mouth full, so you know, how, you know etiquette. And so we have some questions from our audience. This one comes from Adrian in Los Angeles, California. Yes. Adrian writes, Is it poor form to wear another band's T-shirt to a concert... Related, is it dorky to wear the t shirt of the band you are watching? So, two good questions
1: from Adrian. That's getting way next level here. Um, (laughs) Let's break
2: it down. The first of the poor form to wear another band's t shirt to your concert. (laughs)
1: Uh, It is not. Okay. No, I listen, you know, show up with clothing, with no clothing. I would say um, the fact that you show up is enough. We're happy that you're there to share with us. How's that for riding the fence? No, that was good. I think you answered both
0: of her questions.
2: (laughs) Well, but let's talk about the second part of the question for a second, because I think there is a general consensus that it is dorky to wear to a concert a T-shirt of the band that you are about to see. That has
1: never—I've never never associated— If I see somebody at a Metallica show with a Metallica shirt on, I've never associated the word "dork" with that.
0: I mean, those T-shirts keep him in egg whites. (laughs) That is
1: true. Maybe next next year we can get real cups.
0: I will say, being at I've been to Metallica concerts, and what happens with T-shirts is if you see an older one, that person's cooler. There's some sort of hierarchy there. Commands respect. You know, like older fans versus newer fans. Do you agree?
2: Uh,
1: I may not be the
0: best person to ask. (laughs) All right. (laughs) You can't slander your fans. Okay. Exactly. All right. You don't even wear shirts to your concerts sometimes, (laughs) so what do you know?
2: All right. Here's something from JR in Santa Monica, California. JR writes, how do I tell my roommate to turn down the volume and still retain my manhood? We are all (laughs) fans of rock and metal, but sometimes it's just relentless.
1: Wow. Uh, I guess, does the word headphones mean
0: anything? (laughs) I mean,
2: yeah. <laughs> tell your roommate to wear headphones. The headphones. Yeah, exactly. By the way, I should mention, Lars, but... your, your movie is the loudest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> okay. This is the first press screening I've ever attended where they handed out earplugs at the door.
1: Yeah. Well, we figured that if we we're going to make a movie of this size and this scale that, you know, the one thing that always seems to fall slightly short in movies like this is is the sound and the feeling it, you know? Yeah. yeah. One of my first motion picture experiences, there was a movie that came out in like 76 or 77 called Earthquake mm. in Sense Around, and so as you were sitting there, the <laughs> whole theater was shaking like it was a real earthquake. And of course, what it, it was a disaster movie, exactly. Yeah. What it really was was just you know, they put in like four more subwoofers in this theater, <laughs> but people went to you know, feel the theater shake. Uh, I would say that you know, I, I may have thick skin over the <laughs> over yes. 30 years of, of dealing yeah. being at the receiving end of what we do, but um. I'm not one to embarrass easy, so I would knock on the door and say, hey, listen, why don't you turn the music down slightly and put some headphones on? You know
0: what, Lars? I think you solved their problem, because once JR tells his roommate that Lars Ulrich of Metallica said (laughs) (laughs) to turn down the music, I think that dude's going to turn down the music. That's loud. There you go, JR. Take that to the bank. Okay,
1: JR. All right, so
0: so I'll tell you who, who this question comes from when we get to it, but the question is, or the statement is, I'm vertically challenged. I often find myself at concerts where people are stoked about the music, and so they stand up, which means I can't see. Advice on tiptoes in San Jose. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Um,
1: body tackle.
0: <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> uh, That's what I'm thinking. Body
1: tackle or buy them drinks so uh, they fall down. I don't know. I can sympathize. I mean, I'm uh, you know closer to five seven than I am to five eight, so I've been in in that particular <laughs> situation often. I mean, part of I guess part of the experience of going to a rock show is that it's supposed to be a collective experience yeah. rather than can we you know, make sure that each one of us has the perfect viewing corridor. <laughs> so, I mean, there is, you know, you know what I'm saying? There was at least, you know, on a serious note, when I was 12, 14, 16 going to shows and stuff like that, I mean, part of the reason that I went to shows was because I wanted to belong to something that was bigger than myself. Mm. It wasn't just necessarily about like, I've got to go and get the best seat in the house and make sure that it's sort of like this perfect evening. It's, I got to go Mm. and understand that there are other people that feel like I do, that want to experience the same things that I do. And that I'm not alone in my world, you yeah. know what I mean? So maybe we could leave a little bit of the search for
2: perfection at the door. Sure. So on tiptoes in San Jose, let them stand, and maybe the solution would be to, you know, maybe crowd surf to get a better view. Yeah, I mean, no, you're not going in for a spa
1: treatment or something. I mean, it's a <laughs> rock and roll show. Let loose a little, you know?
2: Lars Ulrich of Metallica, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. <laughs>
1: and thanks for having me. Yeah. I um,
0: And I look forward to more shenanigans. Metallica's new concert film is called Through the Never. It's in 3D, IMAX, multiple subwoofer packing feeders now. Yes. And despite what we just learned about Lars, it's not a romantic comedy or frilly musical.
2: (laughs) That's right. And it's it's also a good way to catch Metallica if you're short because everyone will be seated. There you go. Uh, People, if you have a question about how to behave, we will find someone to answer it, either an expert or someone who is really cool. Or sometimes both. Sometimes both, even. Send your query via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org
0: It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we learn something from an expert. Today our subject is the 2008 K2 disaster. K2 is one of the tallest and deadliest mountains in the world, and on August 1st, 2008, 25 climbers summited the mountain, and only 11 returned. Our expert is Nick Ryan, director of the summit, a new documentary about that awful event. Nick, welcome. What prompted you to make this movie?
11: I was intrigued by the statistic that for every 4 people who stood on the summit of K2, one had died trying to get there. That was my initial draw into the story and I thought why would any why would anybody you know, put themselves up against such odds there would be like you know you've got better odds playing Russian roulette
0: why is K2 so special because it's not the tallest mountain
11: it's the second tallest mountain it's not much shorter than Everest it's only a couple of, it's yeah. 250 meters but shorter. it
0: seems like it has a special, special appeal to climbers
11: K2 has the reputation of being called the killer mountain the savage mountain and because it's it's much steeper it's uh, I think Wilco Van Ruyen the Dutch climber says it in the beginning he says if you want a good story for a birthday party you climb Everest if you want to climb a real mountain you climb K2 I'm sure that'll <laughs> Uh, yeah. as you climbers. The reality is, it is. It's it's a much tougher climb. There's a, there's an objective danger on it. It's a very steep mountain. Twenty five people
0: left that morning to summit K two. Only eleven returned. Can you explain some of the reasons those people didn't return?
11: There was a lot of teams in K two on K two that year, and the weather was particularly bad. So for something like six weeks, they were all waiting to get to the summit, and all of a sudden, this weather window opened up, and everybody was going to attempt the summit on this one day.
0: So there was kind of a traffic jam.
11: Exactly, yeah. And so basically uh, they decided we need to work together as one team. And what happens in this situation as, you know, the, the frailty is is humanity in that uh, people forget to do one thing or one thing gets left behind. And it starts as they started a little late. They started putting the ropes in too early. They ran out of rope because they started putting it in too early when they got to the section where they needed to, Actually, have rope. They had to wait while they went back and cut the rope they'd put down mm. and brought in. So, you know, before they're even going anywhere, they're they find themselves four or five hours delayed. And then people's oxygen's running low, and the first guy to die literally was crossing back over a climber to get to the rest of his team on a eighty degree icy slope. He unclipped both of his safety lines, which is really not not a done thing. Hit his own crampon, which is the spiky. Bits on your shoes, if you will, uh, and fell backwards down an eighty-degree cool couloir, three hundred meters.
0: One of the interesting moments of this film is when that first person dies. You discuss the the ethos on the mountain of whether or not you help someone. Like, what can be done at eight thousand feet for a person person who died? Some people feel like they need to do something. Others, you know, if I have to put myself at risk, that's not worth it.
11: The unwritten code. It, it isn't that uh, you don't help anybody. I think any. I think the way the best way of looking at it is that anyone who Subscribes to climbing an eight thousand meter peak knows that when things go when the chips are down when things go wrong you're on your own.
0: And eight thousand meters above sea level is kind of where things change because that's a really not many people can withstand that high an altitude. In fact, uh, th- this part of K two and I think other mountains any any portion of the mountain above eight thousand feet is called the death zone. Can you explain what happens to people when they enter the "quote unquote" death
11: zone? The death zone is kind of a, an area that's anywhere above seven five, seven seven thousand meters. So, uh, it's an area where the air pressure is so much lower; it's one third of the, of what it is at sea level. And what that does to the body, the best way of describing it is. Um, you know, your organs slowly liquefy, your brain starts to fill with fluid. It's uh, it's, 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 basically an area where the humans are, just cannot live.
0: And you can combat some of those symptoms by using supplemental oxygen, but even with that oxygen, your, your body and brain aren't functioning the way they normally would. So after a couple of those climbers died on the way up, many climbers continued and summited that day, and no one else died until... The descent, which I guess isn't uncommon. When people are returning from a summit, that's often the most dangerous part. Why is that?
11: When you reach the summit, you're only halfway there. But, you know, there is a sense of elation, a sense of joy, a sense of achievement. You know, your your, your time on the summit is short-lived and you start to descend. Uh, now, you're probably tired, so you're probably not keeping your eye on the ball. Physically descending a mountain, like anything, going downhill, like, you know, it's easier to fall going forward, moving downwards. Uh you know, psychologically, you're probably thinking the hard part's over, the struggle's over, but it's not. Also, in this case, in 2008, a lot of the climbers had climbed with supplemental oxygen. By the time they reached the summit, that was gone. So if you've climbed on supplemental oxygen to that point and it's gone, you're doubly in yeah. you know, double trouble because all of a sudden your body has got this shock of having to deal with no oxygen. And what, what happens is you, you become hypoxic, it's like been drunk. Hmm. you know you, you 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 become very apathetic you want to sit down not move just lie there you kind of be like oh look I'll be fine and you know I'll you know I'll get down tomorrow or whatever but you know this is no place to be lying around
0: yeah so nine climbers died on the descent from fatigue from many avalanches and and your your film suggests from trying to help one another some of them while I was watching this I, I'm just thinking to myself I had the same question you had at the beginning of this project why does anyone do this do you, do you have an answer?
11: Yeah, I mean, I think in the beginning, I was probably quite critical and like, why are they putting the, their lives at risk, other people's lives at risk? You know, it's a first world problem. But I feel that, like, I get it now. I mean, I understand why, it's, it's, it's obsession, it's love. They love these environments, they love this, thing. it's a challenge. You know, I, I'm not critical of their reasons for wanting to do it. Having seen K2 myself, I understand why anybody would want to go there. It is astonishingly beautiful.
0: Well, your movie captures that beauty, as well as the danger of that mountain. Nick Ryan, thanks for chatting with us.
11: That's been a pleasure, Brennan. Thank you.
0: Enrico, after chatting with Nick, I walked him out of the studio and yeah. there waiting for him was Pemba Gelgi Sherpa, uh, a climber who single-handedly saved two other climbers during that whole K2 incident. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing dude. And I shook his hand and I thought about how the only thing I climb is the escalator <laughs> while going to the movies yeah and for me sometimes not even that these incredible people all
2: right and folks that concludes this encore episode of the dinner party download we'll be back next week with a brand new episode and by the way this week we are also celebrating our 250th podcast To celebrate, we have compiled a year's worth of icebreaker jokes into one show featuring the likes of Jonah Hill, the Arctic Monkeys, Portlandia's Carrie Brownstein, and more. It is only available online. Grab it via iTunes, Stitcher, or at dinnerpartydownload.org. And then you can go tweet about it on Twitter. We are
0: DinnerPartyDNLD.
2: Thanks for listening. Bon appétit.